0: This is Revelations Radio News with Andrew Hoffman and Tim Kilkenny on the Revelations Radio Network. All right, welcome back to Revelations Radio News. As we continue our interviews section of the podcast, we have James Corbett on the line, editor and podcaster at CorbettReport.com. He is someone that uh, Andrew turned me on to about a year and a half ago, and I've become you know quite a uh, quite a listener to his work. So uh, James, thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, um, first off, just a, a brief description for
1: uh, listeners who don't know who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, all right. I'm a Canadian citizen who's living in Japan. I've been out here for eight years now. Uh, I originally came out here just to teach English, but I ended up staying. And now I run the Corbett Report website, which I've been doing for the past five years, which is a uh, podcast and interview series. There's uh, videos and articles that I've been creating, conducting, amassing over the past five years now on a range of topics that uh, broadly I fit. I think fit under the New World Order Rubric or however people want to term it, it, basically looking at hidden history and hidden information that that has been suppressed in one way or another in the mainstream media. So I'm part of that independent media citizen journalism movement that's trying to shed some light on some of these issues. And I've now Been talking to uh, hundreds of different people across the globe and uh, have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of media there on CorbettReport.com. That's available completely for free and free to download from anyone, anywhere. So I hope that uh, people are making use of the resource. For sure, for sure. And it is an absolutely
0: excellent resource. Anytime you're uh, you're stuck on something you're researching, you know, check in the Corbett Report, hit the search tab, and uh, you usually can come up with some some great results. Uh, I guess I'm the only person who hasn't been to uh, the Asian region to teach English as a second language on this call. <laughs> <laughs> our, our good host uh, Andrew here has, is uh, also an English major who ended up in South Korea.
1: Well, what else yeah, do you do with the, an English degree?
2: <laughs> yeah, I know, right? You you end up teaching English that it's in a foreign country, but uh, yeah. James, I've, I've been listening to your, your podcast. I was looking at the archives trying to figure out where I jumped on. It was sometime in the first 50 or so, Um sometime right around that number, but, but it has always been, uh, since, since I first found it, must listen to, uh, you know, must listen to podcasting. So it's, and for people out there who haven't listened to it, um, it is kind of like podcast as an art form. It actually takes advantage of the format to, you know, mix together um kind of a, a cohesive uh, cohesive grouping of, you know, whether it be interviews or documentary clips or what have you on one subject, which makes it such a great resource for people who are, you know, looking to to dig into this stuff. Uh, you know, talk radio, um Sometimes, you know, take someone who's who's great, like Alex Jones, but he'll hit on 50 different things during, uh, you know, during a broadcast. And the great thing is you can take one of those subjects, look at the Corbett report, search it, find a podcast about it, and actually, you know, get it all in context and what have you. So, so thank you for, for that resource, and, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. And let's – if um, I'll just kind of – Jump in here. What what are your kind of top five favorite Corbett reports uh, podcasts? Whether the your personal favorite or maybe the ones you've gotten the most positive feedback on, or, or what have you.
1: Right. Well, you're exactly right. There are a number of different ways to look at it. So I will resist the temptation to look at the ones that I like from my own personal perspective because obviously I have a, a different take on it. Having you know, created these episodes, but uh, but I mean, for for example, I could look back to episode uh, twenty five, "Shut Up and Eat Your GMOs," which uh, is probably not the the most total uh, you know final word on on GMOs and uh, why genet- genetically modified foods are, are uh, something we should be concerned about. But just in the context of where it was and and how it came together, I, I thought it it kind of said what I wanted to say in the way that I wanted to say it. And it's something that I consider to be the first real episode of the the series. If you go back to the the very, very beginning, there are some, um, I I think some pretty atrocious episodes as I was kind of finding my podcast legs. But uh, so episode 25 is one that kind of resonates with me, but in terms of top five, It's very difficult, obviously, but I would say, for example, um, episode 33, Meet Edward Bernays, uh, was, uh, I think, a pretty interesting episode for myself personally. Um, Just discovering about Edward Bernays and and who he was and the things that he was involved with, it was quite mind-boggling. So I I thought that episode pulled that information together in a pretty listenable format. Um, Episode 45, P-TECH and the 9-11 software has been a particularly important one, and I, I still hope that people download and listen to that. I remember listening, re-listening to that one about a year later when I was doing some research for an article I was writing on P-TECH, and I myself was blown away by that episode. Of course, not by myself, but by the information that was contained in it. It's just, I, I think, really important and an extremely important piece of the 9-11 puzzle. Um, another one yeah, that I've always...
2: Um, actually, James, if I, if I could jump in just on the P-TECH yeah. episode... Because I—that's one I can remember where I was. I was walking, <laughs> um, like a, a new highway section that wasn't open yet to cars. So, you know, it's like one in the morning, and and I'm out for my, you know, usually twice twice a day walk and listening. And I was absolutely blown away because I had never heard about Ptech, you know, and I, um, uh, you know, watched nine eleven documentaries and what have you. But that was just you know, breaking new ground, and it was absolutely an amazing episode.
1: And to this day, I mean, still, well, to this day, there are still very few people, even in the 9-11 truth movement, who talk about that, and I still think that's kind of amazing, considering how bombshell that information is. Yes. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I'm sorry for the interruption, but I... No
1: problem. No, no, please, please. Uh, feedback is always welcome. Well, um, I, another episode that I've always had a particular soft spot to was uh, episode 107. It's uh, lessons in resistance, noncompliance, and I just like the way that episode came together. And uh, it was another one where I was re-listening to it after I put it out. You know, as I I often do, as I scramble to put the episode out, and then afterwards I listen to make sure there were no big mistakes. But uh, I was li- re-listening to that one, and I thought, yeah, that one came together really well. Um, uh, another one that I think is, is interesting is episode 123, Meet Smedley Butler. And that yeah. was interesting. Talking about uh, Major General Smedley Butler, one of the most uh, decorated Marines in, in the history of the Marine Corps, who uh, wrote a book, War is a Racket. Um, he basically talked about how um, how he was just a gangster for capitalism and how all of his service was really just going towards maintaining the uh, the – the status quo, the 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 type of system that uh, the the U.S. government was attempting to bring in. He also blew the whistle on a plot to overthrow the government of the U.S. and institute a fascist dictatorship. And yet, still, very few people actually know Spindley Butler or who he was. But uh, but that was an episode where I put it out, and and it was one of those episodes where I was working on it, and I thought it's not, I just don't think it's coming together. I'm not sure I'm getting the point across. I'm not sure this is working. And then instantly after putting that out, I got dozens of emails from people saying how great an episode it was, how much they enjoyed it. Um, new listeners saying, I just found your report through this and it was great. So it, it, that, that's the kind of thing. Every time I put together an episode and I'm just not sure that it's getting across or I'm not sure it's going to have an effect. Those are always the episodes I get the most feedback about. <laughs> so I don't know what or, law of the or, universe that is.
2: Or or when you do a a video about uh Kind of spoofing the official story on 9/11 and it's kind of a, a comedy yeah. satire video and it takes the world by storm. stuff.
1: So. yeah, exactly so. right. You never ever ever know what's going to uh, hit that nerve and, and capture people's imagination, which is why I think you just have to keep doing it and uh, just not stop and not wait for the feedback and not you know wring your hands about it. Just leave it up to uh, leave it up to everyone out there to to do with it as they will. So, for the fifth one, I guess i'll choose I'll choose the most recent one um episode two forty three a message to the future because it's completely and utterly and totally and one hundred percent completely different from from anything I've done before really um it was the 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 idea of course is just me talking to to the future right? a message in a bottle that I'm sending out to the future that some future generation might find. This is an idea that I've had kicking around for years now, literally for probably four or five years. I've thought about doing something like this, but I've just never known how to do it or how it would come together or what, how it would be received or or any of that. So uh, just uh, earlier this month, yes, earlier this month, I was uh, sitting there and i thought well why not why not record it and just see how it goes and i recorded it and it it's not perfect by any means but it is just so different from what i generally do that i thought it it's kind of noteworthy in and of itself um it's not it's not documented rigorously and it's not uh it's not interspersed with clips and things to make it entertaining. It's really just me talking to camera for half an hour, which I guess can be pretty boring. But uh, but it's on an important subject. So I, I thought it was a it kind of step out there. I, I haven't done anything like it before. So I may or may not do things like that in the future. But at any rate, it was a bit of an experiment. And I thought it turned out fairly well. And I've gotten quite a bit of positive feedback about it. So I'm happy with that.
2: Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that. That was uh... Like you said, it, it was something totally different, and it was uh, yeah. I thought it was very well done and, and covered some things, and it does make you uh, kind of think about the bigger picture. You know, yeah. it's not just about current events; it's about um, you know our the next generation and the next generation after that. And when you kind of extrapolate out things that are happening, it, it is kind of a scary prospect. What will be left? in the future, you know, will things keep going this way or will hopefully, you know, the pendulum swing back away from this kind of totalitarian uh, nightmare that we seem to be walking into back towards freedom. So, um, yeah, I think that's definitely a, a great place for people to start and then just kind of whatever subject they're into. Bet report
0: on it more likely than that. So. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm actually really glad we're talking about that episode, James, because I just listened to it last week, and as soon as it came out, I could tell you know, it was something a little bit different, so you know, I sat down and, and watched it, and I think that during that episode, I actually went through all of the emotions. Like, I thought parts were funny, I thought parts like really made me angry, I thought parts were, were kind of uh, you know sad or, or kind of desperate, but it was really just a, a tour de force of the uh, kind of just you know, distilling it all down and getting the point across. Like, you know, like I had to laugh when you said you said nation states like once or twice and then you're like, wait, I should stop and explain what nation <laughs> states are. <I> mean, <laughs> and, and kind of just, uh, you know, just kind of stream of consciousness about, you know, things that many of us who are out here talking about this sort of stuff and, and not just the podcasters, but the listeners uh, probably do think sometimes and to to get it all out there and, you know, almost even making yourself kind of vulnerable, showing that, Yeah, I really care about this stuff. And this is what I think. And here's what the future could be. You know, what can we do? And then to end it on a positive note about the human spirit and and uh, and just uh, overcoming was I thought it was a really great podcast,
1: too. So it's kind of cool. We got a chance to talk about that one. Well that that was important to me to to end it on that positive note because obviously if I didn't think there was a chance for the future I wouldn't be here doing this at all so um so to to my mind there there is hope for for future generations and there there is something that we can do in our generation to affect that change and I just want to convey that point in every possible opportunity that i have because i don't want this message to be one of people giving up or, or that we're inevitably going to lose this battle i think we have to uh to keep on fighting no matter what and uh and basically well i mean we do what we can and the rest is up to god so that's uh that's basically all we can do amen to that all right so
0: Andrew, do you have any final thoughts on on the top five i think that uh the P Tech one was huge, and I actually was going to toss out one of mine that I thought was absolutely unbelievable. I think Andrew actually sent me a text the you know the day or two after it came out, and said, so you got to go listen to this one. And that one was uh remembering not Fletcher Prouty, but it was one back in December. It was, uh Michael? No, no, no. I should know this. <laughs> David Kelly. Yeah, that one. That was the one who was killed in West Virginia. Oh, oh, yes, um, yes, uh, Danny Casalero. Danny Casalero, that's right. I don't know why my mind drew a blank, but, and that whole thing where you did it, you actually split it into two episodes and then came back and talked about remembering or, uh, exploring the octopus or whatnot. And then even to the point where in the middle of that podcast, you actually stop and said, also of, you know, I am not planning on killing myself anytime soon and do not, you know, which is what Danny Casaleiro had said to people, you know, before he ended up dead and supposedly was uh, suicide. And that was just one of those ones where I had never heard of this. You know, there was like they had, that episode had everything. There was a unsolved mysteries clip in
1: there. I mean, it was just amazing. So, uh, well, you know. I'm glad to hear hear that because it is an important story. But that's one of those episodes I felt so frustrated about because there is simply just too much to possibly cram into even two episodes i think i could have done five or ten exploring all of that and i probably should and probably will do interviews with some of the authors who've written about it in the future because there's so many different aspects that that story touches on i really just glanced the surface of it in those episodes
0: and that was uh, pardon my uh ignorance here but now that was a different software than the PTEC software,
1: right? Well, uh, that's not exactly clear. Okay. Uh, we don't really know the pedigree of the PTEC software, but there is basically the idea that there has been a lineage that came through that InSlaw promise software the inslaw
0: and, that's right
1: yeah yeah inslaw was the name of the company that, that developed this software on a on a uh, uh, not a grant uh, a contract with the Department of Justice, but the Department of Justice basically ended up stealing it and uh and so inslaw has been involved for decades in a b- battle a legal battle with uh, with the department of justice to try to Gain compensation for the software that was stolen from them, and uh, basically, it's it's of course been pilfered off into the system and been tinkered with uh, by intelligence agencies who used it as backdoors to spy on other other intelligence agencies and governments around the world. So it's it's already in such a web of deception that I don't think we can ever quite sort it out from this side. But uh, but I think the implication is that P Tech didn't just spontaneously come out of nowhere. Right, it was probably part of that in- intelligence agency kind of world th- from which promise came from and obviously has been adopted and adapted and updated for, you know, the 20 years or so in between the p- the original promise and when p came along. So, so I think it is an iteration of the same type of technology, but I don't think we'll ever quite hammer down that pedigree.
0: Sure, sure. And for listeners, uh, that is episode 209, Requiem for the Suicide of Danny Casolaro, and it splits off and actually goes to episode 210, Hunting the Octopus. Some uh, some some amazing podcasts, I, I have to say. So, um, Andrew, do you have any thoughts? Like, what, what maybe you want to talk about your favorite one, uh, Andrew? Well,
2: I mean, P-TECH's got to be at the top of the list. I also enjoy, um, you know. So, some of the areas that I've looked into, uh, eugenics, propaganda, so all this sure. stuff on Edward Bernays and what have you. But as far as the, uh, the software, it's interesting that, you know, p was marketed as risk management software. So it's kind of interesting even in the, <laughs> you know, in the government's own agencies and the big corporate world, you know, that quest for security is really where the problem is. You know, just like which yeah. the, the police state is their promise to us for, oh, this is to keep you safe and what have you. Like, oh, PTEC is to, uh, you know, manage risk and protect <laughs> you from outside forces. When in reality, that that's what's letting the the trouble in. Yeah.
1: It's an excellent point because it brings up the underlying point that it's always our insecurities that they play on in mm. order to provide us with their so-called solutions. And I guess the the corollary to that is that if we don't have insecurities, then we don't need their system at all. So they have to create these these insecurities in us. And they do that through all sorts of different means. And for example, I mean just through advertising, they make you feel insecure about yourself and your 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 body odors and whatever in order to sell you products. And it's the same it's the same idea writ large when we talk about government insecurity. I mean they just try to make you feel insecure about if fanaticist Muslims or, or whatever the, the boogeyman of the moment might be and um, and basically if we detach ourselves from that system and find a way to live outside of it then we don't have to rely on them for their solutions and we don't have to rely on their so-called quote-unquote security
2: well and I think that that segues into something we were going to talk about later but I guess we could we could kind of jump into it now um, because your kind of a approach to solutions that is something um, that you do cover on the podcast quite a bit, and I think it's quite possibly the most difficult area as far as alternative media goes. Um, and you kind of touched on it on a recent episode too—the negative side of it, where it's like, "Oh, you question the official story? Well, tell me what actually happened and give me oh, the proof." Yeah. You know, so that that attitude, um, and it, you hear kind of similar things where it's like like well you're saying there's like this big evil system behind everything well what are we supposed to do and you know it's like you're supposed to have this the silver bullet solution that solves everything in in 5 minutes but um what are some solutions because you certainly don't seem to be someone who uh who believes in in political solutions to the problem <laughs>
1: I, I certainly don't, or at least not anymore. Um, certainly, I've, I've evolved over the, the course of the, the podcast through my research and through the different things that I've been you know, bringing on board. And I, I would say I've, I've come quite a long ways from when I first started in a lot of different respects. And one of those respects, I think, is the idea of politics as some way of solving these, these problems or these crises. And I, I I must admit, back in 2008, for example, I was – quite excited about the ron paul revolution and what it promised etc etc but uh, i think now four years on from that and uh, a little bit older and wiser i i think certainly things like uh, ron paul and and what he's brought to the table has been important in waking people up to some of these issues and educating millions of people who may never have heard of it from any other source about some of the issues that are important but uh, in terms of providing a, a solution i think i've come around to the viewpoint that we have to really stop waiting for some political savior to come from, you know, Washington DC to to help everyone, you know, dispense freedom to people or something as if it's something that can be given from on high. I think we have to understand that we have to n- not rely on on the political side of things. We have to rely on ourselves, our our family, our friends, our community, the people that we actually know and interact with and uh and of course the the definition of that is expanding as we get into this internet connected age but but we have to uh to start thinking of it in terms of not what system are we combating or what are we fighting against so much as what system are we trying to bring into place what kind of community do we want to live in and uh and in that regard i think you're right to say that uh it's extremely difficult to present solutions to people because often if it's not the solution they want to hear, they just pretend you didn't say it. So uh, <laughs> so people want to hear some sort of quick fix solution. Yes, you you go to a, a voting booth and you pull a lever once every four years and everything will be solved when, of course, absolutely, 100% it is not that simple. It does not work that way. It's an extremely long and difficult process of weaning ourselves off of the system, a system of control that's been weaved around us for years, decades, generations, centuries really that uh, that we have basically bought into we've we've invested ourselves in that system bit by bit by bit and uh, it's really just that gradual progression that we can be led along into that type of tyranny willingly and that's that's to me is the scariest part of it because it really is a mental choice that people make to either support the system and the status quo and to go along to get along or to take the hard way and to start to get off of that system and whether that means pulling your money out of the the big banks and putting it into something more like a, a a local, you know, savings and loan or something like that, something local that is in your community or whether it's using an alternative currency or uh or trying to uh, grow your own food or or participate in local uh, farmers markets, etc. basically trying to get off of the system by which they're able to control us. And when we are able to, I mean assuming that we are able to do that to more or less of an extent, we will eventually be able to completely bypass all of these problems that they're throwing at us. If Once again, if we're not dependent on their system, then we're not dependent on their quote-unquote solutions or security. So they don't have that leverage over us. And that that's the long-term solution. But I'm not here to say that that's an easy thing. I'm not here to say that I'm I'm sitting here on a cloud telling people what to do because obviously I, I'm not perfect in my life. I'm just trying to get better and better, at, you know, in terms of getting off of the system and doing what I can to warn others. And I think we all have to help each other out. And and I don't think any one person is going to come along with all the solutions. I think we all have to work together to try to implement them piece by piece. So it is not a, it is not a silver bullet by any means. It's not going to solve everyone's problems overnight and it doesn't involve, you know, Touching a touchscreen once every four years, but it does involve hard work, and that's why a lot of people don't want to hear about that type of solution. That's
2: yeah, that's I I definitely agree with that, and you know, and after this last election cycle with the, with the Ron Paul thing, and and I like Ron Paul, and and to be honest, I kind of feel like a a sucker after <laughs> after going through this last one. Um, not that, not that I ever thought it was the silver bullet or what have you, but, you know, looking back on it and I think Ron Paul is a genuine person who, who means well, you know, I don't think he's a secret, you know, agent of the Illuminati or what have you. (laughs) Um, but what Ron Paul did was took a whole group of us who were really ready kind of to, to act outside the system or to, to give up on the system. And it kind of sucked us back into to that political theater and what have you, at least for a time. And um, you know, and and I really I feel to a certain extent it, it it did that to me. And I I agree with you. I don't think the answer is political. I mean, the the presidency of the United States. Well, it would be great to have you know someone like Ron Paul or just someone not as. Um, Openly horrible as, as Barack Obama or Mitt Romney in there. Um, that's, they're not dictator of the world. They, they tend to act like it sometimes, but, but in reality, there's obviously a much larger system behind them, um, that they wouldn't be able to, to overturn. So it, it is something that has to happen at the local level. And, um, a term that you use sometimes, uh, to describe yourself, I've, I've heard you use it as a, um, Voluntarious. Uh, maybe you could explain that to people, which I think it's it's a nice word. It doesn't have some of the negative connotations of anarchist, which, uh, <laughs> you know, I would kind of describe myself as an, as an anarchist, but not in the sense that people always think of as like brick throwers and what have you. So uh, <laughs> do you want to kind of go over that for people?
1: Absolutely. Well, it is important to understand that voluntarism is a, is an ideology in itself that has its own history and its own philosophy and its own people who've written about it and I'm I'm not using it in that sense I'm not specifically talking about the 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 history of that that specific term but I am as you say just trying to get away from that term anarchism because it is so incredibly loaded with with uh, people's preconceptions that it's basically impossible to to have an intelligent discussion about that and I think at least the very least that the term voluntarism puts the emphasis in the right place it's not about government or not government it's about how people uh, what moral basis people have for interacting and i think it comes down to absolutely some basic moral principles that i think are are inviolable that uh, that we can't initiate force on another person to coerce them into doing something that against their will i think that's uh, fundamentally immoral and uh, and whether you want to dress someone up in a uniform and call them, a you know, a law enforcement official or whatever and, and pretend to bestow that power on them, it doesn't make it any less immoral. So I think it has to come down to the, the question of who has the, the moral authority to act and in what way. And I think if we just removed the the any pretense that there is any right of a government or agency or whatever mythical institution they want to create to come along and tell people how to act. And to coerce them into doing it and to use violence if people resist. If we can get away from that system, I think we're at the very least on the right track because uh because ultimately i think there people have just been convinced uh, somehow for some reason some way that that governments have this this ability to do things that no one individually has the right to do so i can't come along and tell you that you have to pay me a certain amount of your paycheck or else i'll send men in you know uniforms with guns to come and put you in a cage and if you resist i'll kill you but somehow we give that we bestow that right to the that mythical collective we that somehow doesn't exist but, but we give its force by, by putting these institutions into place and uh, and if we just take a moment to really examine that system and look at the underlying belief I don't think we can be honest with ourselves if we adhere to that belief that it's wrong, to, I- immoral to use force against others to, to make them do things against their will and yet we're willing to do that in the case of, uh, of government agencies if we're being completely consistent with ourselves and our philosophy, I think we have to eliminate that. So so I went through, I think, what, probably what is a pretty usual progression from something more uh, looking at, at at it from a minarchist perspective. Well, yes, we need less government. We need to you know, constrain government, et cetera, et cetera, to, to the, I think, the only philosophically consistent position one can take once you've arrived at that point, which is, well, actually, no, government itself is the problem. And it doesn't matter if you have... The nicest, most uh, most uh, generous, most well-meaning person in that position of power—it's still a position of power that is, in and of itself, immoral, and uh, just just its existence is uh, is I think part of the problem. So, uh, once again, I think polit- politics is not going to be the answer because I think it is fundamentally at the base of the problem.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I I couldn't agree more. I was actually just sharing with Andrew that. Uh, you know, my progression as of late, you know, I started off kind of, uh, as a libertarian in as a podcaster and kind of ind- independent news hound or whatever, trying to look, trying to listen to other people's podcasts and whatnot. And this, this anarchism, anarchy, you know, anarchism, uh, term kept coming up, you know, repeatedly. And that, like, James, I've heard you use it several times and I've even heard, you know, Andrew here use it. And I just, you know, just to kind of, uh, validate what you guys were saying earlier about the, uh, evil connotations, like, the, the first thing I pictured was like, a, a, pers- like a, a person with a black ski mask throwing a Molotov cocktail. Like that's what an anarchist is. And that's, you know, that's what I had been led to believe it was. But just last week, we actually had a, a, a good guy on here, uh, Sean McCraney. And we interviewed him and the conversation drifted in this direction. He says, yeah, he says, I'm a Christian anarchist. And I was like, all right, that's it. You know, Andrew had fi- had mailed me this book, you know, months ago called Anarchy and Christianity by Jockey Lulee. And I thought I got to read this book because I got to understand what's James talking about, what's Andrew talking about. Now I got Sean talking about it, so I went and read it. And I have to say, it's 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 a very interesting position. First of all, it's not at all what I was led to believe it was—the stereotype of anarchism. And one of the things I found most interesting is that it's it's biblically sound. Like it's a it's a position that you're going to struggle against the government kind of like you were saying because government the institution is the problem. So there will never be a government that's going to be good enough. So you have to constantly struggle against it. And I think that's actually a very good position to be in for uh Christians because we if we really take a look at the Bible and think of you know think this through, there's never going to be a right government on this planet because we're all human, we're all fallible and you know it's just not going to happen, so to constantly struggle against the government and tell you know uh you know uh what you know and until there isn't a government, I think is a good is a good way to go because any government that I think that most Christians are going to value is probably you know the government of God, like when you know who knows you know uh, as we head into the future what that would look like, but I just think that it's actually a very valid position to have and but on the on the other hand you got to get over the, the the absolutely negative
1: connotation that goes with the word anarchism Unfortunately, so I think that that's exactly right. And um yeah, it's just it's one of those nuts to crack because it's been I think, obviously, it's an idea that's that is fundamentally revolutionary. So so to allow people to have that kind of idea or to openly discuss it is, of course, verboten. So what happens whenever there's an, an idea that's that's n- not only worth discussing, but really necessary for us to discuss in order to progress, it becomes one of those topics that they can just create a word or a term that instantly has negative associations so that people don't talk about it. It's the exact same way that 9-11 truth, etc. is labeled as conspiracy theory so that it can shut off a vast majority of the population from even looking at it.
2: Yeah, that's that's a great point. And one of the things, maybe it's because I was a, uh, an English major and have kind of a similar background um, as you do in some ways, James, but I, I enjoy the way you look at Word and you know how when they're turned into slogans and how they lose their meaning and what have you and, and how you work work uh, you're going to discuss the subject you know you work to define what it is you're talking about and what do you mean by these terms and it's something that uh, you know is, is absolutely necessary something that Orwell talks about not just in 1984 but in in his essays on you know, like the word democracy and how that mm-hmm. has just been emptied of any any real meaning or what have you said. Um, And I, I think that's kind of it's how some something, you know, and what, what Tim's referring to, um, you know, here's, and you know, Tim and I are, are both Christians, and we you know, when you go and, and read the Bible and when you've had some of the background in, you know, looking into events like 9-11 and realizing that that much of the world is not as we're told it was then you kind of realize that the things that um, you know are stereotypically quote Christian in the media uh, pro-war you know Republican and what have you also have absolutely nothing to do with with that belief system and with the Bible so I think um, you know kind of the process of digging down into what do we mean by these words what does Um, where do our belief systems come from is is something that, um, you know, I've enjoyed listening to to you exploring it, and um, it's something all of us need to do. So I think, um, I I don't know if there's maybe um, I kind of took it down a rabbit trail, but if I could kind of jump back, what do you look at when you look at this whole kind of New World Order system what do you look at as kind of the, the cohesive force behind it, or do you think it's just uh, chaotic? What's your take?
1: I don't think it's chaos, and I think that that's one of the things that is thrown out for us to to believe in in our current day and age. We we have to believe in just random events that just kind of follow each other in, in time, but don't really follow each other causality-wise, and I think that's something that's been thrown at us for for Decades, generations, centuries now, that uh, that everything is disconnected. It's just random things that happen, and we shouldn't bother to look into that. I think definitely there is a cohesive force behind this, and and it is an ideology. It's a, it's a belief system. In some respects, I think it wouldn't be too far to say that it is a religion that uh, that we are fighting against here. Mm. It's it's um it, it it's a religion that basically sees a certain section of the society as as different as as above the rest of of humanity, and this this chosen few are are the special ones who, who who deserve to populate the earth, and the rest of us are just cattle to be used. And and I I I, I mean I use the term religion advisedly because I think when you start to look yeah. at the the history of eugenics and the, where that idea came from, how it developed, how it's been propagated, I think the people who have been its adherents and and the people who are propagating it the most vehemently are the people who. Who thousands of years ago were were trying to use the uh, the idea of the divine right of kings. Well, this is the king, he's been <laughs> appointed by God, therefore he can rule over you. Well that, that started to fail at a certain point in, in human history, so they just switched over to, hey, well actually there's these things called genes, and my genes are better than yours, so I can rule over you. And it's the basically the same flawed idea, but it's just uh with a more modern, you know, updated spin on it and i think it is just a that same mentality the same ideology the same mindset the same religion and that's why i think there are uh, when when people try to look for who is the ultimate top of this what person can we point to as being you know the 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 kingpin of all of this or whatever i think that's when people start to get into the fighting over oh it's <laughs> this group no it's that group no it's this person no it's that family no it's this bloodline et cetera, et cetera. And honestly, I think that that's uh, just spinning wheels. Um, I, because y- if you take out any one person from that equation, it's a power vacuum, and just another person will come along to fill that spot. I don't think any individual is that important in the greater s- system of it. So I think we have to look at it more from a, a totality, a, a total perspective. and've I've likened it before to to trying to uh, slay a dragon that that if you cut off its head it can regenerate its head and and i don't think that that's that's uh, where we should be aiming at i mean you have to go for the heart mm-hmm. of the system and so, uh, so there are people who squabble over what which head to be hacking off and and how best to do it. But uh, personally, I'd prefer just to uh to get to the heart of the matter. And and really, we are the heart of the system. You and I and everyone else that we know who participates in the system that's been erected, who who actually you know pays our money into the the corporations that are part of the system and and banks at the banks that uh, are part of the system and shops at the stores that are relying on the food. Chain that is owned by the same big agri companies that own that are part of the system. Every time we invest ourselves in that system it, with our time, energy, or money, we are part of that system. We are we are part of it. We're, we're really pumping it. We're pumping the fluid, the blood around the organs. I mean, we are the heart of this system. So if we can withdraw ourselves, the system itself collapses. It's really a question of whether we want to participate in that and we want to continue to feed. This beast, or whether we want to withdraw ourselves and watch the beast die, and that—that that to me is the decision we have to make. And uh, again, it's not what people want to hear because they want to hear, oh, there's this person or there's this group, and if we can just chop off that head, it will all be over. But it's—it's uh, okay. it's not it's, that kind of fairy tale. Yeah. I've, I've,
2: enjoy the, the callers in the talk radio that are like, well, if there's only 30 of these Rockefellers, <laughs> we just need to, you know, get some bullets and some guns and take care of the problem and everything's solved. So now, And I agree with you. It's a, it's a system where the individuals involved are really irrelevant. I mean, you, they could be gone and someone fills that role the next day. It's, it's a larger system. And I really like what you had to say about the basis being an ideology where some human life is valued more than others. And I think that is an absolute key to it. Um, And it is that ideology is the basis behind warfare. It's the basis behind war propaganda. Hmm. Um, You know, in American media, American lives, (laughs) with the connotation that American lives equals more than lives of Pakistanis or any other... You know, nationality. American lives are more valuable. And, you know, Americans buy into that, like, oh, we're on the winning team, you know, that makes sense to us. When in reality, the the ideology goes much further than that. It is, um, you know, the lives of the self proclaimed elite are worth something, the lives of the rest of us are worth nothing. And I I think that is um, that kind of hatred of, humanity or at least of of the common man is is certainly something very critical to uh to the mindset that we're dealing with.
1: Exactly right. And and it is such an important part that people buy into that because they want to be part of that winning team, etc. And they can mm-hmm. they can be caught up in that. But how any self-professed Christian can repeatedly in their heart at least uh, justify the the breaking of that commandment, thou shalt not kill by by whatever means they want to do that, uh, it, it just uh, it boggles my mind that people can can hold those two thoughts in their head at the same time. It it
0: should boggle your mind. It's absolutely probably the most frustrating thing we deal with on a consistent basis on this show. It's uh, you know, I, a little bit about me. I joined the military and was kind of raised in uh, Middle America and was a good American boy, you know, and uh, wanted to vote Republican and go off and fight for my country. And uh, it was later I found out about nine eleven truth and, and stuff like that and i had kind of thrown out the baby with the bathwater thinking like well you know this uh supposedly christian nation and this uh, christian culture that i was raised in sure seems to be quite all right with going overseas and killing people and uh kind of just turned away from that and it wasn't until i like discovered 911 truth and stuff like this to, to kind of come out the other end and find You know, Christians talking about this sort of stuff who are saying, like, there's absolutely no reason to go to war and there's absolutely no reason to continually, uh, you know, vote Republican and say that it's all the evil Democrats or the secular humanists fault, you know, uh, to that whole mindset. And we have no no bones about it. We often talk about on the show. And it's uh, it's just it is it's extremely frustrating. It's probably the most frustrating thing that we can can talk about, uh, because. I think Andrew said in our last conversation uh, last week with Sean was that uh, we shouldn't be putting ourselves in a position to be uh, a voting block to be exploited, you know, by the likes of Donald Rumsfeld, who came up with the idea that hey, we got to get these Christians to vote, you know, for us, or else it's not going to work. And all of a sudden, George W. has a uh, has a, a coming to Jesus moment. So uh, yeah, you know, that's one thing that I I think we try to talk about as often as possible, and it makes our podcast is somewhat different than others, although we have most of the same thoughts as other people in the truth movement. But it's just like, hey, you know, we're Christians too, and we're talking about this. We don't think that, you know, Mitt
1: Romney of all people is is the
0: answer, you know. So uh
1: yeah. I agreed, absolutely agreed. I think it is just another one of the tricks that they play by trying to use the cover of Christianity to to forward their agenda. And unfortunately, the, a lot of the big mega churches will go along with that yep. agenda and will promote that, but I think I think serious Christians and and even serious critics of Christianity would would not use that straw man argument about uh about what Christianity is. I think it's really just a, a convenient lip service cover that's being used to try to uh wrangle people who are are not thinking deeply about these issues into it and uh and really all you have to do is start to scratch the surface and and look at oh you well why are you so eager to break you know the commandment thou shalt not kill etc to expose <laughs> that this isn't Christianity and it's not what was taught in the Bible.
0: Andrew any thoughts?
2: No, I think that was that was awesome. Should we um Chime in with, with some of the original questions we
0: had. Yeah. I'm trying to look here. We got a few. Um, let's just, let's, talk, let's go to Fukushima real quick. So, uh, James, uh, mass media in Fukushima, for some reason, they're not talking about it at all. You're located in, there in Japan. Uh, what is going on um, at, at Fukushima right now? Why is there no coverage? And is it as silent in Japan as it is here?
1: Well, certainly the, the media here still covers Fukushima and you'll still find it in the newspapers and on TV, but uh, it's certainly not front and center anymore and it's not the number one story, although it is actually kind of in a, in a different way. It's played out into a political movement here that I think is extremely important and uh, should be being followed, but of course it's not being followed in the uh, in the mainstream media around the world. But, uh, but basically back in December, uh, TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, announced that uh, the reactors at Fukushima Daiichi were in cold shutdown and basically that means below boiling point of water so they could be effectively you know cooled to the point where they're not going to uh to spontaneously start to react and they're not going to boil off the water anymore and they're not going to continue their their reaction so so that they they declared cold shutdown problem solved except for the fact that there are still leaks all over the plant in various places. They're still uh, having problems even finding room to store all of the, the radioactive water that's uh, that's running off. Uh, they're paving over a vast section of the, the ocean floor where the uh, the leaks have taken place, because that's basically the only thing they can do now to try to make sure that that radioactive sediment to the bottom doesn't start to spread etc so um, there's all sorts of things going on and probably the most concerning not only for the people in Japan but people around the world is reactor uh, number four and the containment the building for reactor number four is where they were Storing the spent fuel pool, uh, they had a, in the spent fuel pool they had 1,300 plus uh, re, uh, fuel rods mm. that are filled with uh, r- radioactive uh, fuel, MOX fuel that uh, that is extremely toxic, extremely radioactive, and this building is itself extremely unstable at the moment. It was damaged in the orig- original earthquake and tsunami it is at the moment still in a very precarious situation and there are a lot of people who are concerned that in the event of a big earthquake in the area it will simply topple over and in that event if uh, the the fuel rods uh, the spent fuel pool containment is breached then uh, basically all of that radioactive waste is going to go straight up into the atmosphere it will be bigger than chernobyl it would be bigger than anything we've seen um, on the in the history of the world so it would be a major major cataclysmic event and it's one that uh, has been talked about a little bit here and there in the uh, in the mainstream media, but not very much, and for obvious reasons. So the latest on that is that TEPCO has done some tests of how they're going to start removing the rods from the fuel pool in that building. And they've they've rigged up some cranes, etc., and they I think they removed two fuel rods out of the thirteen hundred plus. Hmm. And uh, you, you, some of the uh, stories that were written about those two fuel rods that removed were, were interesting because they made it almost seem like the problem was over, that they'd removed them all or something. It was it was really bizarre the way some of these stories were written in a kind of sly, not in a wink way to make people think that the situation was under control. But they're in fact not going to actually start getting underway with that removal operation until December twenty thirteen. So until that point, basically the world is a nuclear hostage to uh to whatever earthquake or tsunami or whatever comes uh Fukushima's wow. way. So uh, still a very precarious situation in a lot of ways, but uh, beyond that, I think one of the most important things to come out of Fukushima was the fact that over the several months afterwards, um, reactor after reactor came offline. Uh, Japan has 52 nuclear reactors, uh, four, six of which were at Fukushima Daiichi. So uh, over the preceding several months, they all started to come off offline one by one for checks and maintenance and to make sure that they were up to standards, et cetera. And so there was a brief period earlier this year when uh, Japan was completely nuclear power free for a period of a couple of months, and then they restarted two of the reactors. So right now, two out of the 52 reactors are currently uh, operational, And, um, and there's been a huge Huge anti-nuclear movement here that's been growing and growing to the point where over the summer they were getting out somewhere in the neighborhood of well over 100,000 as much as 200,000 if you believe the organizers as little as 14,000 if you believe the police Hmm. were flooding the streets of Tokyo on a weekly basis uh, doing protests outside the government buildings and even outside the prime minister's office. And this eventually resulted even in the Prime Minister actually meeting with uh, some of the representatives of that protest movement about the idea of of scrapping nuclear power. A uh, government commission was set up to examine the future of uh, Japan's nuclear energy policy. And uh, basically, it was examining a few different possibilities, whether they should basically go ahead with nuclear power as planned, getting as much as 30% of the, uh, the nation's electricity from nuclear power by, I think, the 2030s. Whether they should go down to about 15 uh, percent, or whether they should scrap nuclear power altogether, and amazingly, unbelievably, earlier this month, the the, uh, the government panel came back and recommended that they do scrap nuclear power altogether. Wow! That they stop uh, building, that they don't build any new reactors, that uh, and that they eventually start decommissioning all the old reactors after 40 years of operation. So that would mean by the 2030s, most of the reactors would be offline and it could be as late as the 2070s before they're all offline, depending on how the construction that's currently underway goes, etc. But however that works, if it is implemented, and of course it's just a policy uh, recommendation at this point, but if it is implemented, that would mean nu- Japan would be nuclear-free by at least the middle of the, the, the century. So so that is a significant movement, I think, um, in in terms of going from a, a nation so dependent on nuclear power to one that is actually envisioning a, a nuclear free age, which I think is uh, is good because of the, 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 as we've seen, the reactors, the way they're designed, the type of uh, uh, fuel they're using, et cetera, is just basically designed in a horrific way that leads to uh, cataclysms that can affect the future of humanity. So I think we do have to transition off of that, and uh, there are lots of different suggestions on how to do that. And I think uh, Japan has a real opportunity here to to be at the cutting edge of that type of uh, energy revolution to see what other ideas there are out there.
0: Sure, sure. And yes. I actually learned quite a bit from you on on what's going on with uh, Fukushima. I'll obviously, from your website, uh, I guess we should give that out now. It's a update dot com. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. All right. And um, one of the things that I didn't know was that uh, what one of the reasons we have the nuclear reactors in the form that we have them is so that the, uh, they can use the weapons grade uranium or uh, Turn them into weapons. They can weaponize the
1: uh, the the uh, is it uranium or spent fuel rods? They can weaponize them. Yeah, the uranium can be enriched uh, okay. enough that it it can be used in, in uh, as material for for, for nuclear weapons. So, so that's basically the in the 1940s in the 19 early 1950s as the this uh, technology was developing. Obviously, as the U.S. was trying to to stockpile its uh, its own nuclear weapons and trying to work with and creating more nuclear weapons. There needed to be some sort of way to to get this this system of of enriching uranium online and and how are they going to introduce this to the public and how are they going to find sites to do this etc cetera, etc cetera. and basically they hit on the idea well why not just sort of create a nuclear energy industry basically around this very premise and that's exactly how the nuclear energy industry was was formed how it came to be how it is in the in the state that it is today and it neglects the fact that there are have been on the drawing boards for for decades now, alternatives to this uranium-based fuel reactors. For example, the uh, liquid fluoride thorium reactors, which (laughs) are completely opposite to these uranium reactors in pretty much every way that you can think of. They're not boiling water reactors or anything of that sort. They're not these types of systems that require all of these backups and fail safes and generators and, and whatever types of active or passive systems are in place to try to contain those nuclear reactions in the event of an emergency, the liquid fluoride thor- thorium reactor would actually be the type of reaction that requires active inputs to keep it going. So at any point, if any of that fails, that reaction just stops which is exactly what you're looking for in that type of situation. You don't want the type of thing where you're going to have to find a way to somehow get generators going, etc. In the event of a crisis, you're going to want something that actually just stops. So this has been on the drawing boards for decades. It's been tested out in in test reactors. It's even been implemented in in small ways in in various countries, but uh, there has never been a concerted effort to actually make this a reality. Uh, because it doesn't really serve the interests of the nuclear weapons agenda, so uh, it's it's a it's a really fascinating history when you start to dig up the details on it.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and folks, see that's the sort of stuff you'll learn if you start listening to the Corbett Report. So we definitely en- encourage people to do that. That was absolutely new to me. The the idea that there was yeah. a different form of nuclear power where the default position was just stopping instead of blowing up um and not and not creating this this horrific nuclear waste that um in the state we live in washington state i mean yeah. obviously that's, that's an issue with with hanford and and what have you so um, and kind of the other part and we're we're kind of coming to the end james uh we know you got to get back to to car this week's podcast but um one the the pattern I saw with Fukushima as far as media coverage, um, and it really applies to almost every other event, is just the mainstream media will cover something ad nauseum, um, maybe if it's a really big story, maybe for a week. And then that's it. It's like you're just supposed to forget about it, you know, whether it be uh earthquake in Haiti or or just these horrific events where people's lives are changed forever. I mean, it's an ongoing issue, and yet it's a news cycle constantly, and then you're just supposed to forget about it. You want to kind of comment, you know, why do you think they do that, and why is it important uh, for the alternative media to kind of keep covering these things and to obviously cover them from a, a different perspective?
1: Well, that's a, that's a very good point and I think it ties back into what we were talking about earlier, how we've been trained to think that there is no causal relation between events anymore and things are disjointed and they just... Flow, you know, without any meaning, and so there was no there was no meaning behind something like 9/11. It was just something that happened. And if you're looking for anything beyond that, you're a conspiracy theorist, etc. So, so that that is an entire mindset, an ideology, and a worldview that's obviously created and crafted through all sorts of different sources, from from the education we get in the public education system to to all sorts of other sources. But one of the key ones is just the uh, the, the mainstream media and the news that we're fed on a daily basis, which is always about the crisis of the moment, the catastrophe that's that's happening right now unfolding, you know, as we speak. And then 24 hours from now, it might be something completely different. And we never again hear about what we were hearing about yesterday as the biggest thing in the world. And that just that that process being repeated over and over and over day after day after day, inculcates in people this idea that it's always just about whatever's happening right now. And if we just put out this fire, then we can move on to the next thing. And and it it sort of compartmentalizes everything in people's minds so that people don't look for a connection between things. Uh, You know, economic collapse and war and destabilization and terrorism and all of these things are, of course, all part of one parcel. But if we can just, get people to compartmentalize that in their mind and always only be looking at the story of the day instead of anything that preceded it or anything that's likely to follow then people are a lot easier to control and uh, and they can basically never never understand what's happening let alone seek to actually you know combat that in any meaningful way so i think that's an extremely important part of the whole process is just the uh, the the very nature of the 24/7 news cycle and the way it moves from story to story is designed to get people thinking in that mindset that things just happen randomly and that there's no connection between events so it is absolutely 100% one of the most important things that the alternative media can do to to combat that because I think people genuinely do care about these issues and they genuinely do want to know but they don't they don't know that they want to know if I can use that phrase because Mm -hmm. because they they just don't know that there is some sort of alternative to, to that sort of mainstream paradigm that they've been used to their entire life basically from the moment they're born, certainly myself, I grew up in a media environment with television and newspapers and then eventually uh, internet etc. So I think we've all been conditioned into the types of things that we see uh, on the mainstream news as being the news and I think we have to fundamentally shatter that paradigm and I think it is happening. I think that's happening with the internet. We are living through an incredibly revolutionary time. And, of course, that can be a, a good thing. It can be a, a horrific thing in many ways. Uh, I mean, it's obviously going to lead to struggles and confrontation and violence and, and, and well, bloodshed in various parts of the world. But uh, but at any rate, I think humanity still has the chance to fight back against this. All is not lost, and uh, and people have to start looking for and supporting those alternative sources of information that are helping to highlight some of this.
0: Yeah, I couldn't 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 agree more. Couldn't put it any better. So, is there anything else that you might want to cover before we wrap it up here?
1: Well, I'm just uh, going over uh, my notes for our conversation, and I I was noting talking about the the podcast in general, and and talking about podcast podcasting it versus uh, cable news or, or talk radio or the various other types of media. And I think it is important to talk about the ways that that podcasts have. In in really changing the nature of the, of the conversation, because cable news, talk radio, etc. have these these program formats that work very well for disseminating information in a certain way, but podcasting is such an open art form. And it, as a, as you said earlier, and I did like that description. I, <laughs> I blush at the the idea that it's being used to, to describe my own work, but I, I really do think. It is a type of art form because it, it truly can be anything that the person wants to do. There's no constraints whatsoever, and it can take whatever form the person uh, wants to, to take. So so for my mind, it's always been interesting for me when I've been doing this for the last several years and I've been, had the opportunity to, to uh, talk to and, and see a lot of other people doing this work. And it's interesting. So many people, when they get into this, immediately want to have a talk radio program and for me, it was it was absolutely not something that I was really <laughs> gunning for or aiming at. I, I didn't really care one way or another about talk radio, per se. I just wanted to get the message out. And for me, the most efficient and, and productive way of doing that was through podcasting, because uh, because basically, in in talk radio or or other types of formats like that, I mean, you're you're limited by what you can go into in depth and what you can talk about in terms of. Um, uh, you know, highlighting what you're talking about with clips, et cetera, becomes more difficult when you're doing it in a live environment. But if you have time to go back and, and edit things in and out, et cetera, then you, you can really craft something. And I think, uh, I, I I hope that shows in my podcasts. And I certainly do think it sh- shows in a lot of my favorite podcasts that I listen to, that people take a lot of care in preparing it. And uh, and I think that that's such an expansive medium that there's really a lot to be done with it. And of course, the best thing about it, I mean, it's available anytime, anywhere to anyone in the world with internet access and uh, and you can't beat that. So so I think podcasting is a great medium and I certainly hope there are more people out there who will get into it um, in the sense that I don't think everyone has to be a podcaster or everyone has to have their own website, etc. But for people who are on the fence and thinking about doing it, all I can possibly say is to go for it because what, what do you have to lose? I mean, what's the worst that could happen if you decide you don't like it? You just scrub it. From the web and never talk of it again but but if it works <laughs> out i mean you can really truly affect people in ways that you would never ever imagine and uh... certainly that's that's been the case with me i never ever in my wildest dreams ever thought i would have a website <laughs> let alone that i would be doing this let alone that this would be having such an effect and i get feedback from people all over the world every day and it's uh, it's just an amazing amazing thing to me i never ever expected it so so if you are out there and you are Wavering on this, I always say the more the merrier. I think we need more voices in the mix and more people out there helping to spread the, the, the word and the information. So I hope people uh, will take that to heart and will hopefully uh, start this for themselves because uh, I think there must be people listening to us right now that probably do a better job than I do. And, uh, and I want to see them do it. Certainly,
0: certainly and a better job than, uh, than, than we do too. And it's interesting that you mentioned the podcast as an art form because it was listening to the Corbett report that I started to realize like, wait, so all he's done is take the audio from a certain video that I've already seen and put it in here, but it really puts together a a much more cohesive uh, medium, you know, a much more cohesive uh, piece of media. And I, I started to do that. You know, there's a certain point where you can go back in our podcast for sure. And you'll, there'll be, you know, a very definite dividing line where I didn't do that at all. And then I started to do that afterwards. And, I think that uh yeah, definitely making it into an art form has been uh something that you you've kinda taught me, you know, whether you knew it or not, is even down to the fact that I uh have a uh an Audio Technica A T twenty twenty on order right now <laughs> which is on it on its way in because uh, you know, I emailed and said, Hey, how do I you know, how, how do I get the awesome quality? And of course James is super helpful. He's like, Hey, I use this software, I use this uh microphone and it you know, you really do practice what you preach and that you are encouraging as many of us to get out there and do this as possible. And you're right. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine, um, having not podcast these last few years of my life, I have met so many amazing people. You know, I started off with a different podcast that wasn't news related, but still, you know, was interacting with others and talking to people from Chile, from, you know, Japan, from all these different places. And it really is an interesting medium that, Unlike talk radio, and it's funny you mentioned that we actually did a short stint on what was kind of a talk radio just about a month ago we We tried it on for size and just realized it wasn't it wasn't really a good fit for us and uh you know it's funny that you 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 at first didn't think that was a good fit for you because you're probably the most professional radio host I know I mean you handle questions, you know do the buffers perfectly i mean I know what kind of work goes into that I'm the one that's editing or doing the stuff behind the scenes so it's funny that you know you, that wasn't necessarily your preferred preferred medium.
1: Well it is it is kind of funny that I've ended up in talk radio despite having I've resisted that for so many <laughs> years but uh, but i'm I'm attempting to do it in in its own way. Obviously it's a different medium so it requires a different approach and you can cover topics in a different way. So I'm hoping to uh, to get better at that. And I think uh, I am getting my radio voice, but I still think podcasting is for me is I mean fundamentally the corporate report will be I probably always for me it will be fundamentally about the podcast. That's where I think I've done my greatest work and where I really try to concentrate my energy. So, I agree. so that's, uh, that's what I'm doing. And I, I just want to say that I cannot stress enough how great that feedback is to hear that other people are, are picking up on that message and, and are trying to, uh, to, to take this to heart and to do it themselves. That's, that's the only feedback that I really need to hear because, uh, once again, I'm not saying that I have all the answers that I'm always right about everything. But as long as, as long as you can get other people to start doing it for themselves, then they they can start to understand it from, from this perspective, that it's about a conversation and it's about us all getting involved in that conversation. And that will only be for the better. Even if we disagree with each other on this or that issue, we can still come together in this great conversation and add ourselves to that mix instead of just being passive recipients. And now that we have this technology in our grasp, at our fingertips, I mean, it's easier now than at any other point in human history to reach... Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people. It's just a mind-boggling time to be living in. And uh, I'm just so – so I guess we're all blessed to be living in it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I could just kind of chime in on that. Um, one of the great benefits of podcasting versus other mediums, I mean, can you imagine going back and watching a cable news show from even <laughs> – Seven days ago, much less a year ago, it, it would just be totally worthless. It's pretty much totally worthless this Yeah. Day. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: But but you could take you know a, a a podcast on a certain issue, which is how you know the Corbett report is is arranged, and that's timeless. You know, it, it's like reading a book on a subject. You can go back to it, and it's still relevant to to what's going on today because it's all. Um, you know kind of one thing and that's absolutely you know a a great resource for for everyone out there whether you know whether they come to your work right away or come to your work in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years it's it's still going to be um, beneficial And, and I think you know one quick question I have is was it right away that you decided to do it kind of topically, or I remember you used to have kind of a news segment where it was current events and then go into the the topic. What what was the the evolution of that that format?
1: I, I think it was always meant to be a one podcast around a certain topic and to explore that topic thoroughly. Because I I myself came at it from listening to to talk radio specifically to Alex Jones, and I I was mm-hmm. greatly influenced by his work and, and mm-hmm. things he was talking about. But it was always somewhat not frustrating, but I, I saw that there was the need for for that that type of focused taking a look at one subject and trying to bring all the threads together in in one. In one format, because uh, something like the Alex Jones show, it's great for all those different subjects. But as you say, it might cover dozens mm-hmm. of different subjects in one radio show. So if uh, so, I thought, saw well, if you could just really pursue one and try to get all the threads together, you could do that. So that was always kind of the impetus behind it. And then uh, somewhere, I think around episode 20 or so, I started adding the the real news segment at the beginning because it was somewhat frustrating that something that I talked about a few years, a few weeks ago would be popping back up in the news and things would be developing, but I wouldn't be covering them and that felt wrong somehow. So so that was my attempt at trying to bring in some of the news to that. And then eventually that got split off and became Sunday Update, its own video series, and eventually that series was discontinued. And now I cover news in various other ways than my video and radio show. So it's it's an evolving process for sure, but, but the podcast has always been intended to be that one subject covered in as much depth as possible. And I think really the, the, the apt analogy is a documentary. I mean, it, it's an attempt to be an audio and now video documentary at basically every week, just a one hour documentary around one subject and trying to explore it in all the different ways possible with the, uh, with what we have at our fingertips. So, so that's wh- how it came about. And uh, again, it's still a work in progress, but, uh, but it's, it's still exciting to put together new episodes and see how they come together and, see the types of feedback I get and, you know, try to adjust from there.
0: Yeah. And as someone who puts together a podcast, you know, it, it takes one to know one and I know how much work goes into it. And uh yeah, you, you definitely put a lot of work into this stuff and it shows and it's, it, it's a useful resource. And I think another important point to cover real quick is just that, you know, while we do live in this golden age, that is absolutely amazing. I couldn't agree more. It, it may be a small window, you know, it may be a small window. So, you know, if people can go to Corbett Report and, and find the episodes that they're interested in download them and save them to your own hard drive and maybe even purchase the DVD archives because, uh, you know, who knows how long that this, uh, this glorious, this golden age of podcasting, I guess, will
1: will be around. Well, that's what I always stress. We we don't know how long we'll be able to use the, the Internet in the way that we're using it now to freely communicate or at least, you know, in quotation marks, freely, depending on what services you're using, etc. But I think <laughs> the future is more and more about uh, Twitter and YouTube and Facebook and these giant websites that can basically act with uh, impunity unilaterally to decide what can and cannot be shared and how it can and can, cannot be shared. And, and they will be the final arbiters on everything. So until we get... Totally shunted off into that system, and personal websites, etc., are made, uh, you know, deemed illegal and, uh, and and horrific because of the types of, you know, free speech that people have on them. Um, until that happens, I think we have to use this window, and that's that's basically what I'm doing. I mean, I'm I'm uh, trying to put as much effort as humanly possible into this while we have it, because I know it's not going to uh, to last forever. So, or it. it might might not last forever let's not be completely yeah i guess that, about that's
0: that's true it,
1: we don't know for sure
0: but we're just you know something to be to be careful about i guess it's about time to wrap it up here how can people get a hold of your work and support you james
1: Well, the one-stop shop is CorbettReport.com, that's C-O-R-B-E-T-T-Report.com. And as I say, it's got, uh, well, probably thousands of hours of media now, completely free, freely available for download. I just hope people will make use of that resource. If they find something valuable, I hope they'll share it with others. And if they want to support my work, um, obviously not until they've gotten used to my work and and know that they want to support it, but if they do, I sell uh, DVDs and I have a subscriber-only newsletter that uh, that comes out once a week. So those are basically the main means of my support. And I rely on the kind- kindness of strangers. And thankfully, there are many kind people out there so that I can continue to do this. That's right. That's something that
0: we, we should mention that you do this full time, that you did this part time for quite a while. And now you do this full time. I will recommend the DVDs. I put uh, the last word, the most recent version, the last word on voting on uh, Facebook and got a lot of positive people, got a lot, a lot of positive feedback and whatnot. And I guess you just released a few days ago the Last Word DVD, which I actually just happened to to grab today. So uh, that's the, the the
1: next big one that's coming out absolutely i'm actually as we speak not only working on the podcast but working on getting out the first shipment of discs so I, yes absolutely it's a busy time but um but yes i'm i'm uh so just to be clear uh, the last word is a video series that i'm doing it's released on my youtube channel and on my website but it's uh, uh so there was a series that i did last year 2011 i did uh, seven episodes of that series and i'm starting it up again this year so the last word on voting is from 2012 this uh, new DVD contains all seven episodes from 2011. So the last word on independence, the last word on utopia, the last word on overpopulation. It's basically a pretty contentious series, and it gets a lot of uh, positive and negative feedback, and gets a lot of criticism. <laughs> yeah. But that's good. I think it's just a way of opening the conversation. So, um, so I'm quite proud of this work, and I hope uh, people will uh, get the DVD.
0: Yeah, the last word on CCTV, I believe, is my first corporate report ever. Any any final thoughts, Andrew?
2: Just, just James, we really, really thank you for coming on. I know uh, we we really do reference for vet report material <laughs> pretty much every week. Yeah, it's really an honor to have you on, and uh, just keep doing what you're doing. It, it is appreciated absolutely, and um, yeah, thanks again.
1: Well, I absolutely appreciate you guys for having me on, and
0: anytime you need me, just let me know. Cool. We might, we, might, we might go ahead and do that and, and send another invite sometime. So thanks again for stopping by. And, uh, yeah, everybody go to corporatereport.com. It's a great source of information. We'll talk to you later, James. Thank you. A copy of this podcast, as well as links to each story covered, are available at revelationsradionews.com. To contact Andrew and Tim or to support Revelations Radio News, Please visit revelationsradionews.com and click on the contact tab or support tab. Please check out the other podcasts at revelationsradionetwork.com and thank you for your support
2: of this podcast.